You are listening to Shining Star Community Church, English Ministries Sunday Message. Please visit us at www.shiningstar.life. Today we'll be entering into a new and interesting section. It's commonly called Joseph's Story. It's wildly popular. In fact, they made a theatrical production called Joseph and His Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Remember that? Do you guys? Whatever. So, so people who have never really even grown up in the church would actually still find this section vaguely familiar. Now, this passage, it gives me a lot of hope. If God can do what he can do, what he did with Joseph, then I believe he can do the same thing with me, with you, with our children for his glory. Amen? God, he can grow godly individuals in an ungodly world. Yeah, he can. You know, I remember way back when, I've, I've used this illustration a few years ago too, but I had this youth parents who, you know, we, we, they, had, they had a couple of boys, and I went to go visit them and really just to eat their food back when I was a youth pastor, and we are talking about, you know, if they, if they wanted more kids, they had two sons, if they wanted daughters, and they said, you know, ultimately, we didn't even want kids to begin with, and there their boys were at. It's kind of like, thanks a lot, Mom. Um, and the reality was, for them, they thought the world was so wicked, so just disgusting and vile, that they did not want to bring any children into this God-forsaken world, as, as they said it. Um, and that's the reality for a lot of parents, too, for a lot of people. They're scared, and I get that. But here we know that, you know what, as a child of God, you are protected by him. Right? You are protected. And God's purpose in trying to sanctify us and make us more like Christ, if that's his will, he will make it, done. He will make it happen. And so he can certainly grow godly people, godly individuals in an otherwise ungodly world. He can do that. Amen? And so, you know, I'm encouraged. Every time I see some of our youth students who graduate, I'm no longer the youth pastor, but we had a handful of students who graduated now from youth group, and they're going off to their various campuses or just wherever next chapter in their lives. And I'm always in eager anticipation to hear what God's been doing through them as they enter the workforce or enter campus ministries where a lot of secularism and a lot of worldliness is just running rampant. A lot of professors are pretty much preaching everything but Christianity. I'm interested because a lot of our students, they start seeing the power of God work in their lives. And a lot of great things happen. And I believe God can do great things through you too, in whatever you know, area in, in, in your life or whatever stage you may be. Amen. Do you guys believe that? Yeah? Now I have a few points to make today. First of which is this. God, he wants us to seek after purity. Turn to your neighbor and say, be pure. Now you guys can't even look at each other in the eyes. So it's interesting how different Joseph was. Joseph was different. Every time you see Joseph doing something, he was doing the right thing. And so this made him very different from his older brothers. In verse 2, we're told that Joseph was tending to his father's sheep with his half-brothers who were the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. And if you recall, they were Rachel's and Leah's handmaids. Essentially, they were servants of these two, of these two mothers, of these two wives. So these two handmaids were given to Jacob by his wives, so he fathered two children with each. The sons of Bilhah were Dan and Nephtali, and the sons of Zilpah were Gad and Asher. 
And as you read the story, you get the impression that this may have been the first time Joseph was sent out to work with these brothers, and what he had witnessed them doing shocked him, shocked him deeply. This is probably Joseph's first exposure to the disgusting, vile, wicked nature of his brothers. And truth be told, this isn't something typically revealed to us during our early, early Sunday school days. Because when we think of the brothers, we always think of, oh, they were jealous of Joseph, right? That's it. Yes, but more. Because according to Genesis 34, 25, the brothers, they were murderers. Genesis 35, 22, they were guilty of incest. Genesis 37, 4, they're guilty of hatred. Genesis 37, 11, guilty of envy. Genesis 37, 38, guilty of enslaving their brother. Genesis 37, 31, 33, guilty of lying. Genesis 38, 12 through 18, guilty of immorality. And there are probably so many more. That's just not recorded. And so Joseph's older brothers really weren't all that great. Certainly not ones to look up to. And so when Joseph went out to work with them, Whatever these brothers were doing shocked Joseph so much that he essentially tattled on his brothers to his dad, Jacob. Now, this event was really, I think, the pivotal moment in the relationship between the brothers and Joseph in that the separation that already existed really now became a huge chasm because really the root of bitterness really began to grow in the hearts of these brothers. Now, some people think that Joseph was being a goody-two-shoes and that the hatred and the division brought about between the brothers and, he, and him was really something that was his doing. He brought upon himself. But the reality is this. Joseph, he lived with integrity. And he knew he had a responsibility to his father, the father who was the head of the household. And the father, he needed to know what was going on. After all, these weren't just some random guys doing bad things. These were the sons of Jacob. These were the sons of the leader of this entire household. And they were doing horrific, terrible things. And furthermore, not only was Jacob's name on the line, but whatever evil thing that was being done, during that time, the brothers had in possession of the entire flocks of Jacob. So Jacob's livelihood, his credit, his resources, everything was on the line. Now, let me tell you the difference between gossiping and what Joseph did. Because, you see, gossipers, they often have a goal of trying to build themselves up. It's all really self-centered in that sense. It's the idea of wanting to build themselves up so much so that others would look bad. So gossipers, they speak of other people's faults, of their failings. Gossipers or gossiping are words that are spoken without consent and will ultimately bring division rather than unity, brokenness rather than healing, and destruction rather than encouragement. You see, in our membership class, which just ended, and by the way, for those of you who just graduated from membership class, you're thinking, when's Pastor David going to give us our exam? It's coming. So don't worry. In our membership class, we learned that to be a proper, unifying, and functioning member of this body, one of the most important things we must do away with is our love for gossip. But not only that, have you noticed that people who try to justify the gossip say things like, well, I was just trying to hold them accountable, right? Or they try to rationalize it by denying any wrongdoing or blaming someone else or minimizing the seriousness of the infraction. This is something I've learned through ministry is that when there's a problem with someone, okay, when you have a problem with someone, then you need to confront that someone. 
You need to confront that person. Don't go around that person in the name of seeking advice. I've had that done so many times. And then when they're caught, when they get caught, they say, oh, I was... I didn't know how to handle situations. So I was asking my sister what I should do. Oh, you're, you're gossiping. That's what you're doing. And if there are any problems within ministry, as there will ultimately always be, don't gripe about those problems with one another. Rather, come talk to me or to our church leadership because it's the leadership that the change needs to begin with. So come talk to us, okay? And so that's what Joseph did. He did the right thing, and he went straight to his dad. Instead of gossiping about the wickedness of his brothers to other people, did you hear what Reuben did with, with you know, the concubine? Are you serious? What did he do? He went to straight to his dad. We too had to tell the right person. Jacob had the right to know what his sons were doing, so Joseph told his dad and his dad alone, and he told Jacob in an effort to stop the evil, to stop the not to get praises, not to get a pat on the back, say, oh, that's my good boy, I'm so glad you gave me some dirty dish about these darn kids. No, no, no. You see, Joseph, he saw wickedness, he saw evil, and he said it needed to be stopped. So that's why he did. That's why he told his dad. But let me also say this. We must not gossip, obviously, but neither should we ever turn a blind eye to the sins of our members. If there is sin in others, it should offend you. It should offend you. You should not want that sin to overcome your brother or sister, right? Because you love him. So with love, with a lot of grace, we need to speak up and express not only the truth of their sin, but the grace of God's love to forgive them and restore them. You hear me? Always be sympathetic, but always stand firm in what is holy and what is not, what is righteous and what is not, what is biblical and what is not. So people, our lives should be marked by purity. After all, the God we serve is a holy God, and, and he expects his people to be a holy people, 1 Peter 1.16. God, he wants us to stand separate from the world and its wickedness. You should be different. We should be different. Turn to your neighbor and say, be different. You know, the way you act, the way you talk, the way you think, the way you live, all that should be different from the world. And what's scary is that we always try to find the fine line between worldliness and godliness. So we keep pushing to see how far we can be in the world without compromising our faith in being of the world. You get that? And that's a dangerous game to play. God is not asking us to sit on the fence. He's saying, be separate. Be holy. Be pure. And look, it's not easy to always do the right thing, but our lives must be marked with integrity. In any given day, there are plenty of moments to do the wrong thing. Maybe, maybe at work it's stealing time. Maybe if you're really desperate, you'll steal office supplies too. Maybe at school it's cheating. Maybe in our relationships it's just better to lie so we can protect each other from pain. That's the allure of sin. It always seems easier and better for that moment, but we need to understand that living with integrity is not so much about our circumstance as it is about our character. So yes, it would have been much easier for Joseph to just cover up what his brothers were doing. In fact, it would have been far easier for him to join in them in their sin because then they would have gladly accepted him, right? They would have loved on him because right now they hate him. They hate his guts. 
But they, the moment they see Joseph partaking in what they were doing, they probably would have been doting on him, saying, oh, our long-lost little brother, finally you've come to. Yes, you can finally join in our festivities, join in our parties, join in all those things and whatnot. You see, the reality is it is very easy to be accepted by the world. Incredibly easy. Just compromise your purity. Just stop living with integrity, and the world will welcome you with, wide, with arms wide open, ready to embrace you. But the moment you stand up for what is true, the moment you stand up for what is righteous, what is holy, it will cost you everything. There is no fence. There is no such thing as a fence to straddle as a believer. You know that? There's no such thing. You're either for God or you're against him. You're either his friend or his foe. You are either a saint or a sinner. It will cost you everything when you pick up the cross. So not only does God want us to be separate and seek after purity and to live a life integrity like Joseph, but God also, he honors those who live godly lives. He honors those who live godly lives. Okay, so it's pretty clear that Joseph was Jacob's favorite out of all his kids. It says in verse 3, now Israel, Jacob, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons. The Greek translation says that he loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. Get it? It's clear, right? Joseph was daddy's little guy. Now, Jacob probably shouldn't have made his favoritism so obvious, considering that he grew up in a home that was rife with favoritism, if you recall, right? But that's why hurt people kind of hurt people. Remember when he was growing up? Rebecca favored Jacob, and his dad Isaac favored Esau. What does favoritism do? It brings in pain, right? It brings in pain, a lot of envy, strife, division. You know, yesterday, Ada was being kind of crabby from not napping. And let me tell you, I don't know about other kids, but my kid knows how to plunge a dagger into your heart. Because as Grace and I were trying to juggle holding Junior, trying to switch off, cleaning the house, making some food, doing all this stuff, getting the bath ready. So we're constantly kind of holding Junior during the entire process, flipping. You know, she's holding him for a while. I'm holding him and all that stuff. And the whole time, Joseph, uh, Joseph Junior is obviously getting all the attention, right? And there in the corner, there Ada was, pouting. And what made her pout even more, what, <laughs> what made her pout even more was the fact that Grace and I were just holding Junior and not her. So Ada, she starts tearing up and she cries out, nobody loves me. <laughs> she actually said that. Now looking back, I probably should have handled that situation better by being a lot more comforting. But I said, hey, God will love you, so stop crying. I know, bad counseling. There's a lot of truth, a little bit of grace in that. Now, later on, I apologetically pampered her with kisses and hugs to affirm her. But at the moment, she thought I was favoring Junior. I was favoring my son. Favoritism hurts. And it certainly hurt Jacob's other kids, other sons. Now, Jacob's favoritism, it wasn't arbitrary, okay? It wasn't to rub it in the faces of his other sons because Jacob's choice of loving and showing favoritism towards Joseph had a purpose. Even though he may have not done it the right way and the best way, there was a purpose behind it. He wanted Joseph to be the head of the household on his death. And how do we get that? 
We get from two things that were said. Firstly, in verse 3, Jacob or Israel was described of his greater love for Joseph was due to having him at his old age. But secondly, we also know that he made him a robe of many colors or a coat of many colors. Now, this statement of old age refers to the fact that Jacob was 91 years old when Joseph was born. You see, he had waited many, 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 many long years to have a child with his beloved wife, Rachel. But also, the son of his old age can be translated to because he was white head on young shoulders. That means that Jacob saw something different in Joseph. That he saw wisdom. That he saw a strength and character in Joseph that was missing in all the rest of his other sons. And so Jacob, at this point, was 108 years old, and he knew time was ticking. It was of the essence, and he would need a son who was wise. He would need a son who had good character and who could lead his family. And it, would, it definitely would not be the oldest son, Reuben, because, like I said, he disqualified himself the moment he slept with Jacob's concubine, Bilna. And the coat, or the robe of many colors, literally refers to a shirt with long sleeves. Now, this special garment was multicolored, and it was heavily ornamented. In fact, it probably looked like quite this oversized shirt, because the sleeves would go all the way to the hands, and the hem of the garment would actually have reached all the way down to the ankles. Now, this is something that the chieftain or the head of the clan would wear, definitely not someone that some common family member would ever wear. This is something who is above work, someone who is above labor, perhaps someone who is an overseer, maybe even royalty would wear. So it was pretty significant that Joseph, of all the people, that he was wearing this. So when Jacob gave this coat to Joseph, it wasn't just an implication or suggestion. This was a declaration that Joseph had been chosen by the father to be the replacement of the head of this house. And so this coat signified Joseph as a superior son to all the other sons. In other words, the coat told the other brothers, don't report to Daddy Jacob any longer. If you got anything to say, you now work for Joseph. And this is huge. Back in the day, the head of the family held absolute life and death authority over all the members of the family. So what happened to his brothers? Now the distinction of Joseph was really irritating to his brothers and they and really created a lot of jealousy. We're told that they hated him and could not even speak peacefully to him. Can you, can you believe that? They hated him so much they could not say shalom to him. Have you hated someone so much? Let's say, just imagine for a second in this church, okay, that you hated someone so much that when you're walking by, you couldn't even acknowledge their presence. The fact that they're passing by you as you're walking down the aisle, that you wouldn't even make eye contact with them. You wouldn't even say, hello, or how do you do? Because you despise them so much that you denied their existence. That's how much the brothers hated Joseph. You are nothing to me. I am not going to even acknowledge your presence. And so their hatred grew with each passing day. We read in 1 Samuel 2.30, God says, Therefore the Lord God of Israel declares, I promise that members of, the, of your family would minister before me forever. But now the Lord declares that far be it from me, those who honor me I will honor, but those who despise me will be disdained. When we live a life of integrity and holiness, look, 
That's often done in our personal and private lives. People may not notice, but God does. God, he knows your holiness. It's not so much about whether God will give you more if you're faithful with what you have, although there have been many cases to support that. And of course, even the parable of the talents indicates that we'll be rewarded for our faithful stewardship of the things that God has given us. But, re- but really, it's this. It's about what you have right now and what you're called to do right now. The true character of your heart will be revealed in the way in which you serve, in the way that you pursue holiness and integrity. That's your character. But not only that, God, he can certainly advance us in many ways throughout our lives. He can advance us, whether professionally, financially, or countless other ways. These, of course, should never be expected. But God, if he lavishes you, if he blesses you with these worldly blessings upon his children, don't just expect it, but know that it's by God's grace. It's by God's grace. And so it's really about how you should respond once you receive those things. And from the example of this passage, we have to make sure that we never boast when we receive these things. Never boast of our achievements. Because when we boast, we're telling the world that it was all because of me. It was because of my work. It was because of my toil, my pain, therefore my gain. This type of boasting would deny the grace of God that's at work in our lives. Thirdly, and this is a hard one, when others prosper, we have to guard ourselves against being jealous spiteful, and covetous. Turn to your neighbor and say, don't be jealous. How are you when someone from your life group, someone from your circle of friends gets promoted, gets married, gets pregnant, gets a new car, new house, anything along those lines? You know the saying, misery loves company? It's because we're so self-centered that if my life isn't progressing the way I think it should be, I'm so glad that your life isn't improving either. Because I don't want you to be better than me. I want to be better than you. Because deep down inside, I think I'm better than you. Deep down inside, I think I'm better than you and that I deserve better than others. I mean, those are real thoughts. That's, that's truth right there. We think we're owed more because we've done more, because maybe we've suffered more, because we've earned more, so we should get more life. We should get more money, get more time, get more happiness, because we think we paid all our dues. We paid our dues. And so when we see someone else getting blessed, it irks us because we compare ourselves to them and we thrust our fists at God and say, that's not fair. That's not fair. No, I'm not going to be happy for them. Where's my piece of the pie? Where's my reward for being faithful and for being good and for being patient? You know, when we respond in that manner, I mean, that's, that's, that's really a reflection just of who we really are. Your true self is revealed right then. And maybe right now, as I'm saying this, you refuse to acknowledge that. But a true person of godly character, a true person of godly character rejoices in the blessings, in the promotions, in the achievements, and the advancements of others. A true person of godly character rejoices when the other rejoices. You know, this even happens in church settings too, though. There have been stories of individuals getting bitter for not being chosen for eldership or deaconship. It happened in our church. They think... I've paid my dues. 
I've done my part, and he gets it over me, she gets it over me, so they leave the church. They leave the ministry, and they run off pouting elsewhere because in their hearts, they have forgotten this thing called grace, which is God's blessing upon us even when we don't deserve it, and they think they do. So they get bitter, jealous, and the spirit of wickedness takes over them rather than allowing them to trust in God's sovereign control, trusting that God is still wanting to shape them, that God is still wanting to refine them and to work through them. Here's my last point, and that is God, he's still working in your life. Turn to your neighbor and say, God is still working in your life. <laughs> so there was trouble brewing in Israel's household, Jacob's household. But God, he was doing something. God spoke to Joseph in two dreams. And in these dreams, God revealed some of his plans for Joseph's life. So let's take a look. From verses 5 through 8, the first dream was of Joseph and his brothers gathering grain in the field. They were cutting wheat and binding it up in sheaves. In the dream, Joseph's sheep stood up, and the sheaves belonging to his brothers bowed down before it. His brothers immediately interpreted the dream to mean that Joseph would one day rule over them, and so they got mad. Right? The second dream, found in verses 9 through 11, consisted of the sun, the moon, and the stars all bowing down to Joseph. Only this time, not only does he tell his brothers, but he tells his dad too. Jacob immediately understands the implications of these dreams, right? And so he kind of gently rebukes his son. But also note something spectacular is happening here. Because for the first time, Jacob is recognizing that God is directly speaking to and through Joseph instead of himself. This further confirms Joseph's future status as the head of the household. Folks, I want to give you guys an encouragement here. I think for so long, growing up in a Christian household, you tend to rely a bit much sometimes on your parents' leadership, spiritual leadership, as we should, especially from the beginning. Especially the fathers are called to be the spiritual leaders in the household. But I want you guys to know that your job and your role and your purpose is to not always remain under their leadership. God wants to talk to you. God wants to speak to you. God wants to have a personal relationship with you. Not just through your parents. Not just through your pastor. He wants to have a daily relationship with you. If this, our Sunday setting, is the only occasion which you hear from God, then you do not have a relationship with him. You do not. If it is only through podcasts that you hear from God, then you do not have a relationship with him. Don't you see? God wants to share something so amazing. And it does not come from another source, but comes directly to you through his word. And he says, will you listen to me? Because I want you. I want you so bad. And that was amazing. Because God was no longer just prophetically speaking through the head of the household, Jacob. But no, now he was speaking prophetically through Joseph. But of course, this only increased the jealous hatred his brothers had for him. Now, there's no implication from this passage that, passage that Joseph was revealing these dreams to gloat and brag. He had experienced a very weird set of dreams, and he needed help interpreting them, so he told them to his family. And I want to say this. 
The Bible is and will always be the primary way in which God speaks to us. I want to say that one more time. The Bible is and will always be the primary way in which God speaks to us, meaning your dreams and even mine does not, will not precede Scripture. Does that make sense? Why did God speak to them in dreams back then? Because they didn't have, they didn't have the complete revelation of God's Word like we do today. The Bible is and will always be superior to any dream or vision that you might have. Now, that's not to say God, He can't speak to us through our dreams, but if it in any way contradicts His Word, then that dream is not from God, but it is rather from your flesh, it is rather from the world, and maybe even from Satan himself. But not only that, the reason why dreams should be extremely loosely interpreted is because the dream is only known to the dreamer. In all the other religions of the world, okay, Buddha, Muhammad, Joseph Smith, and all the countless other religions were conceived through a personal dream or vision. Did you know that? They're all conceived through a personal dream or vision, a dream or vision that in no way could be verified, whereas the revelation of Jesus Christ was public. His birth was public. His life was public. His miracles were public. His testimony was public. His baptism was public. His crucifixion was public. His death was public. And get this, so was his resurrection. It was public. His disciples knew, the three lady, three women knew, and 500 other accounts. You see, Christ appeared to them. The credibility of his words and of his ministry and his deity were proven time and time again. A dream can fade in time. Don't ever put, don't ever put your faith in your dreams and visions that change so often. They change so often. Look, I get it. I've had it too. How many times have you ever had a dream that seems so real, so powerful, so intentional, maybe even so divine? It's immediately you got scared, you start praying, or, and all these things. But then what happens like the next day? You, you have another dream, but then you might describe it as a really weird dream. Like you were a kangaroo, and you were watching a dog show in the lost city of Atlantis. And yet somehow... The dream before that was true, but not this one. Again, I'm not saying that God does not speak to us in dreams. He can certainly do whatever he wants. But what I believe God is trying to reveal to us today is don't place your faith in your dreams. Instead, here it is. Listen to me real good. Build your faith upon the reality of God's word. Okay? That's how you build your faith. Not on your dreams, not on these little visions that you get, or these hallucinations, or whatever you want to call them, but upon the Word of God. That is where you build your faith upon. Amen? Look, sometimes we think we know everything there is to know about our situation. Maybe like the older brothers, upon hearing these dreams about from Joseph, you too would scoff and think, what does he know? I'm older, I'm wiser, I'm more experienced, so you reject it. Here's the reality of our difficult and trying circumstances. Oftentimes we have no clue why it's happening. And how we're, get, how we're going to get through it and where we'll end up. The brothers were tested for sure, but they refused to allow something so ridiculous like having their kid brother rule over them. I mean, where's any sense in that? It just didn't make any sense. But what they didn't know was that, was 
what was going to happen in the next few years. They didn't know because they refused to submit themselves to God. These brothers, they think that if this dream that Joseph had, if it came true, that Joseph, Joseph's rise to power would signify their destruction. You get that? They thought if Joseph rose to power, that they would lose their life or something. And they weren't happy about this. But if they believed and had faith in the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God who saved them, led them, restored them, protected them, provided for them, then they could trust that Joseph's rise to power would lead them not to destruction, but actually his rise to power would lead the other brothers to grace, would lead them to mercy. They thought that Joseph's rise to power would destroy them. But we all know the story. A great famine came. There was no food except in Egypt. Joseph's rise to power in Egypt was the very thing that saved their lives. You know, these brothers thought that God's will to bless Joseph was at their expense. Can you believe that? God, who is our good, good father, he doesn't hurt one of his children in order to lift up another. That doesn't make any sense. I don't take food from my daughter's dish to put into Junior's plate. We need to understand that even in our difficult times, even in times we just don't get why things are happening the way they are, we need to trust that God is working and his plans are more gracious than we could ever dream. These brothers were afraid that God would raise Joseph to rule and lead the family. In fact, that's what Jacob thought too. But the reality was that it wasn't Joseph who would lead the family, but it would be Judah who would lead the family because it was Judah through whom God would work his sovereign will because it was through Judah the Messiah would come to rule not just the family, but rule the entire world, Jesus Christ, the Lion of Judah. Maybe today, like the brothers, we don't want to be ruled in this life. huh? We don't want to bow down, but folks, Understand this, it's not just somebody, it's Christ, the line of Judah, who has come to rule and to lead us. And submitting to him will not be our loss, but will be our gain. You know that? If we are to bow before him, we must be willing to abandon the sins we love, the things that we think will make us so happy and so satisfied and so content. But in that submission, the Lion of Judah calls us to take up his cross and follow him, maybe even laying down our lives. But in reality, it was he who laid down his life for us. Not only did he die, but he rose to give us a new and abundant life. That is what he will lead us to. Look, we can't always see everything. And we won't always know how things will turn out. So we'll be tempted to do what Joseph's brothers did and become hard-hearted or stiff-necked and rebellious. But we need to look to God's grace because more than seeking a life of purity, more than living in a way in which God will honor you, know this ultimately, God, he is not done with you. He's working you in ways that you can't possibly fathom. So here it is. Above all things, he's asking us, Submit to Christ. Let him rule over you. You get that? Let him rule over you. Let's pray. In response to the sermon you just heard, will you allow Christ to rule you? Or is that dream of his offensive to you? Is it offensive? be ruled 
to submit. You see, without submitting ourselves to Christ and the whole idea of living a pure life, it's, a, it's an impossibility, no matter how good you are at it. Or living in such a way where God honors you, that's an impossibility without Christ. Man, there is something in your heart right now that you are so unwilling to relinquish. So unwilling. And maybe it's not just, maybe it's not like an object. Maybe it's, maybe it's your fear. Maybe it's an insecurity that has, in a, in a really twisted way, kind of guided you through your life. Maybe it's a desire to have the approval of man. Man, something is keeping you from fully just exposing your life, your heart to Christ and allowing him to take complete control and claim over yours. And whatever that is, I want to give you guys a few minutes, okay? As you play a little bit of music in the background, just... This is, this is a conversation between you and God. I trust and believe that the Lord spoke to you for the past half hour and that God is still speaking to you right now. Don't resist him. Okay, let's pray. And now at this time, as we approach the Lord's Supper, we want to do so in a way where we get to really examine our own hearts. This is not some normal meal that we're taking or, or anything like that. This requires a lot of, of a sober-mindedness, of a deep humility, and a sense of willingness to judge yourself. We want to make sure that we're in a place where, where we're obeying God's word. So if there's sin in our lives, are you repenting of it? Or are you harboring those sins in your life? If we are unrepentant of these sins, if we're saying that it's not a big deal, them know that we are then minimizing the great sacrifice of Christ. We are minimizing the shed blood on the cross and all that he's done for us. So before we take the Lord's Supper, which is for those who are his saints, for those who have professed that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior, believe, and you have surrendered your heart, your entire lives to him, you may partake in the Lord's Supper as part of the body of Christ. If you have not surrendered yourself to the Lordship of Christ, then you cannot take this. But I hope that you get to one day. So take a moment and pray. Reflect upon 
the great sacrifice of Christ and what he's done. And when you're ready, please come up and join us. For it was his body, this church, that he had died for. Okay, let's pray. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as, often as, uh, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you because there is no other word to express ourselves and our, the complete gratitude that we have for all that you've done. But we are thankful in a sorrowful way as well because we understand that it was our sins that led to this sacrifice. So Father, we thank you that you and your grace and in your magnificent mercy have chosen us out of millions to be and allowed us to come before you as your children. We give you all credit and all glory because all glory is yours. You are the one who picked us out of our pit of despair. You are the one who changed our heart of stone into a one of flesh. You are the one who completely transformed us from an old creation into a new one. Father, it is by your grace and through the power of the Holy Spirit that we are new creatures. And so we thank you that it all started on the cross. I pray now that you will be glorified and as a family and as a church together as we take this, that you will be magnified. We thank you and we love you. We are yours. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.